The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It's 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters. Here is your top five at five. Stocks looking to extend their win streak after the recent Omicron-sparked rough patch. Futures higher again. In Washington, the House taking the first step in avoiding a showdown with the national debt limit. Now it's the senator's turn to make it a reality. Call it Evergrande 2.0. Yet another Chinese property developer in the crosshairs of bondholders for failing to make good on interest payments. And another supply shock for Apple. Reports this morning reveal details about the iPhone maker's Golden Week troubles. And one major credit card issuer making a big bet on crypto. It's Wednesday, December 8, 2021. You're watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Good morning, wherever you're watching us in the world. I am Courtney Reagan in this morning for Brian Sullivan. Let's kick off your Wednesday morning with the U.S. stock futures. Get a look at how things are shaping up in the early going after a nice little rally yesterday. It looks like we're headed in a positive direction, at least right now. Dow Jones Industrial Average indicated higher by 61 points. S&P 500 higher by about 10. And the Nasdaq higher by more than 46 points. And this morning's action does come on the heels of another strong day for Wall Street that saw the Dow rise nearly 500 points. The S&P and the Nasdaq also surging seeing their best days since March. In the driver's seat was tech, again, with a more than 3.5% gain. Oil also coming off a big day with a more than 3% gain there as well. Get a look at what's going on in uh, the oil market right now. We have WTI crude adding a little bit further here. Now we're above $72 a barrel, higher by about a quarter of a percent. And in crypto and Bitcoin trading, let's see if we can hold above this key 50,000 level, holding there right now at 50,200. 132, at least on Coinbase right there. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later on in the show. Let's check out what's happening overseas. Juliana Tattlebaum is live in our London newsroom with the early trade in Europe and a historic day for the region's largest economy. Good morning, Juliana. That's right, Courtney. It's been quite a morning. Olaf Scholz over in Germany has been elected by German lawmakers to become the next chancellor of Germany, ending a 16-year tenure for Angela Merkel. This morning, he will be sworn into the new role. So a momentous day here in Europe, indeed. Turning to markets, for the most part, European equities are edging higher, um, tracking what you're seeing stateside. Yesterday was an incredibly strong session here in Europe. The stock 600 gained nearly 2.5%. You said you guys were seeing the strongest trade since March. Here in Europe, yesterday was the strongest day for the stock 600 since November 2020 when that news came out from Pfizer, that momentous day when the Pfizer vaccine proved to be effective at combating the coronavirus. So major trading session yesterday. And this morning, investors pausing for breath, but still positive overall. From a sector perspective, this is what the split looks like this morning. Um, We've got utilities, healthcare, financial services, food and bev trading uh, at the 
the upside, outperforming the broader market. On the downside, a little bit of a pullback in those cyclical stocks. Oil and gas down about half a percent. The banks down about 0.7 percent. And the retail sector down about eight-tenths of a percent. But again, overall, European markets are edging higher, extending the recent rally. Courtney? Juliana, thank you very much. As she said, we have a green day going in Europe. Well, to Washington now, where the House just hours ago took a key step towards raising the debt ceiling ahead of that September 15th deadline. Elon Moy is in Washington. She joins us now with the latest. Elon, good morning. Well, good morning, Courtney. Congress is moving to fast track an increase in the debt limit with just one week left to go before that December 15th deadline. Now, around 9.35 p.m. last night, the House did approve a new process that allows the Senate to bypass the normal 60-vote threshold to raise the debt ceiling. Instead, just this once, they could do it with a simple majority vote. A source tells me lawmakers are considering increasing the limit by $2 trillion. That will be enough to last through the midterms. Now, the Senate still needs to vote on this process. That'll probably happen on Thursday. But but it does have the backing of the chamber's top Republican. So I believe we've reached here a solution to the debt ceiling issue, uh, issue that's consistent with Republican uh, views of raising the debt ceiling for this amount at this particular time and allows the Democrats uh, to proudly own it, which they're happy to do. Now, both sides agree that default would be catastrophic on a macro and on an individual level. A new report out just this morning by Third Way, a center-left think tank, projected it would set off a stock market crash that would wipe out $19,000 from the typical 401k. Meanwhile, Third Way estimated Treasury yields would surge by 1.46%, leading to a spike in mortgage rates that would tack on nearly $100,000 to the cost of the median loan. Now, Courtney, everybody wants to avoid those outcomes and right now there is optimism that Congress will meet its deadline. Yeah, some of those numbers definitely get uh, attention grabbing, I think, from a lot of us. But Elon, you know, this new method for raising the debt limit sounds pretty complicated. Why is this better than the old way of working together and reaching a compromise? Although I know that's not always easy either. Well, you're exactly right, Courtney. This is unnecessarily complex. And the problem is that lawmakers cannot agree to do the actual thing, which is raise the debt limit. So the only thing that they're able to agree on is for how they want to raise the debt limit. And it was difficult to get them to even get to this point. So there are a lot of people in Washington who say this is a sign that the system is just flat out broken. There's some momentum around a bipartisan bill that would create a pathway for the president to step in if Congress can't get its act together. But right Right now, any type of uh, support for that bill or passage of that bill looks pretty far off. And so this is what we're stuck with in the meantime. Gosh, everything seems to be such a heavy lift these days in Washington. Elon, thank you very much for being with us. Well, to Beijing now and yet another major Chinese real estate developer finding it hard to make good on its interest payments to bondholders. Call it Evergrande 2.0. Our Eunice Yoon joins us now with the details. Eunice, what's going on here? Thanks, Courtney. Well, um, this company is called Kaisa, and as with Evergrande, it has yet to confirm whether or not it's fallen into default. Uh, the company suspended its shares today. Uh, no reason was given, but the developer appears to have missed a deadline for $400 million in offshore debt on Tuesday. Uh, Kaisa had said in the past that it was going to be able to work out some of its offshore uh, debt payments due in December, but last week it failed 
failed to reach an agreement with its bondholders. Uh, Kaisa is the second largest international borrower in China's real estate market behind Evergrande. Um, Evergrande, uh, meanwhile, had missed an $82.5 million uh, interest rate, interest payment that was uh, supposed to be made in a 30-day grace period, which expired on Monday. Again, the company has not said anything as to whether or not it's in technical default. Uh, one tidbit, though, um, Evergrande um, had said that it's hoping to push into EVs uh, to be able to offset some of the problems that it has in real estate. And uh, we found out today that the IT ministry has not approved Evergrande's EV models. So that could be a spanner in the works for its future, um, its, its, its uh, hopes for its future. Courtney? Very interesting. I know EVs are hot and all, but interesting for a real estate developer to go that way. Uh, you know, Eunice, is the government taking any action with regards to Evergrande or the country's property sector in general because of all of this? Well, it so far hasn't taken any direct approach, but it's definitely been indirectly getting involved. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of investors are are quite heartened that they're going to see some sort of debt restructuring plan relatively soon. Evergrande had said that um, it's invited in uh, some local authorities as well as state enterprises into the company to try to work out some of the finances. Um, also, financial officials um, just on a central government level have indicated that the uh, problems that we see with Evergrande would be isolated. And then even today, uh, state media had uh, pointed out that these problems are going to be able to be managed. Uh, the China uh, Securities Journal, which is an official paper, said that the funding needs are being met and that maintaining stability in the market is critical. Wow, a complicated story. Thank you for covering it for us and continuing to follow up on this new development. Eunice Yoon. Well, when we come back, much more on the everything rally and the stock market technician Katie Stockton is adding to her top long idea list. You're going to want to stick around for that. But first, not enough going right now at fashion subscription company Stitch Fix says those shares tank in the pre-market down 24 percent. Details ahead. And later, a worldwide exchange exclusive with the CEO of Diamondback Energy straight from the World Petroleum Conference in Houston, Texas. A very busy hour still ahead when worldwide exchange returns. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. 
Time now for your big money movers. Three stock stories of the morning. Shares of PagerDuty rising in the pre-market after a better than expected third quarter report that saw narrower per share loss than expected. The company also reporting nearly $72 million in sales. Fourth quarter guidance also coming in better than expected. Shares higher by 11%. Shares of arcade chain Dave & Buster's higher ahead of the open. The company out with better than expected third quarter results as well. Dave & Buster's also saying its business continues to recover from its pandemic lows. Shares higher by 4%. And it seems nothing can help shares of Stitch Fix. The stock unraveling in the pre-market. Shares down now 24% after the online personal shopping company issued fiscal second quarter and full year guidance that didn't match investor expectations. Stitch Fix also coming up short when it comes to fiscal first quarter active customers. Earnings and sales for its most recent quarter did come in above estimates. Stitch Fix shares, though, down 65% this year. Well, back stateside here, stocks look to continue to build on this week's momentum. Juliana Tatelbaum told us about how things are going in Europe. This morning, all three major averages are marching back towards records with the Dow Jones Industrial Average, S&P 500 and NASDAQ all indicating a higher open at this point. The S&P and Dow are just 1% and 2% off their all-time highs, while the NASDAQ remains 3% amid tech's recent route. For more, let's bring in Ben Emmons. He's Managing Director of Global Macro Strategy at Medley Global advisors. Ben, it's great to have you here. You know, tech may not have been the biggest gainer in total recently, but yesterday it certainly had a banner day. It certainly did, Courtney, and uh, and good morning. Um, You know, it was a really classic buy and dip moment, I think, yesterday. You know, all the names that were beaten down of last week just came up really fast and rallied and drove the index higher back to where we came from on Black Friday when we first met with uh, with Omicron. So I think the market has now digested that Omicron variant story, and it is then back to business, right? We have to look at CPI on Friday and the Fed next week. So as we start the day, I think that the market will stay probably in a, in a positive tone because the news from Omicron is incrementally positive. But we have to look at inflation now, and that will be the next big focus. What about Fed policy here? Obviously, Jerome Powell made some statements about uh, changing the timeline for the taper. And then that was reiterated by several other Fed officials that seemed to sort of give the market a little bit of jitters as well. Do you think we've shaken those out and now at least we know what to expect and so we can trade accordingly? Or do we still need to make those considerations with some potential volatility ahead? I think there's always some volatility around this topic because, Yes, we could see this announcement next week that they're going to taper the the bond purchases faster. But then it's still about how fast and how long that will take until we get to the next stage of raising the Fed funds rate. And so there's still a period of time of which investors have to gauge on what that policy will look like. But that we got it somewhat out of the way last week was clear, like after the Omicron news the market trailed really down specifically for Powell's comments. So it does tell you that we there too made some progress in terms of digesting that news and going from here. I think what's important, Courtney, is that we are going to have to normalize policy because we're moving slowly out of the pandemic. I think this is partly what the market did over the past week. We're actually in a different stage now where the economy's matured from the pandemic, so to speak. So I think it also comes along with more tighter policy that includes globally, starting with Canada today as an example. So I think that's the environment we're dealing with. 
we may be coming slowly out of this pandemic, and gosh, I really hope that that is the case. <laughs> but obviously, we're going to get an updated number on inflation. That is a key part of Fed policy and what the Fed is watching. What are your expectations, and how should we position portfolios in advance of that? So the inflation number is really key because if you look at the consumer survey, say from the conference board of Michigan, they're pointing to even higher inflation than what the projection is on Friday. And so far, the consumers have been really right about what inflation is going to do. So as we're getting perhaps 6.7% of headline inflation, which that's the forecast, we do got to think about it probably is going to move up a little bit more from there before that starts to uh, stabilize. So in that environment, you want to think about that, yes, one, the big cap, uh, tech names are very uh, uh, advantageous in that environment because their multiples are not affected as much by inflation. I think some of the low multiple stocks that have done historically well in inflation are interesting too. Ultimately, inflation, if that does tighten with policy more, should moderate next year. But I think in the interim, we're dealing with just this high inflation picture. So expect a pretty strong print on Friday. So besides some of these tech stocks, do you have any other suggestions for our audience that might be looking to put some money to work? It's really interesting how we've rebounded from the, the, the Black Friday low and that we have back to this sort of record high and the U.S. stands out to the rest of the world. That is a big protocol relative value. I think that's also where the opportunity will be. We are not just dealing with a reopening here, but with a reopening globally. So as Omicron does advance, we're going to get some shutdowns here and there. I think in the, let's say, emerging markets and Asian emerging markets, that's where I think the value has really uh, come up this year. They, those markets have lagged. So I think you want to look at that as well, just outside of the U.S. I think emerging markets are interesting at this point. Ben Emmons, thank you very much for joining us here today, laying out our market day and strategy ahead. Well, still on deck, your top trending stories, including a country who is extending its weekend by an extra 12 hours and a whole new way to enjoy America's favorite cookie. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Rockefeller Center, but the Christmas tree was dark. Well, today's top trending stories, which include a cookie-flavored wine, a new weekend for one country, and some worries for New York bagel shops. Bertha Coombs is here with more on those, and I need to hear about each and every one of them. What is going on, Bertha? 
Well, Courtney Oreo wants to become wine's favorite cookie. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me either. The classic sandwich cookie is teaming up with Barefoot Wines to create a limited edition red wine. The blend will be available starting tomorrow and includes, quote, flavors of chocolate and cookies and cream. Well, the United Arab Emirates, meantime, is cutting its work week for government employees next year down from five days to four and a half. Country is also changing its weekend to be Saturdays to Sunday to be more in line with Western schedules in a bid for, quote, global competitiveness. The UAE currently has a Friday to Saturday weekend. And New York is facing a cream cheese shortage. That schmear is part of a supply chain problem. These issues are leaving bagel stores short on the spread. As dairy suppliers say, many of the orders they placed have come up short. Philadelphia cream cheese parent Kraft Heinz telling NBC4, that's our local affiliate here in New York, that they're actually shipping 35% more cream cheese to partners compared to last year due to sustained demand. You know, there's a bagel shop near me and they still have long lines every weekend day. And they have the best schmears ever. I, I was I didn't just going to say, the schmear, it's like the most important part to me of the New York right? bagel. I can't imagine that we're going to have a shortage. I'm going to have to stock up, I guess. <laughs> yeah, like everything else, right? I know. Exactly. I'm going to run out of room. Like, in, yeah, run out of room in my closets <laughs> and my fridges and, and everything else. I just want cream cheese for Christmas if anyone needs any ideas. Well, thank you very much, Bertha. <laughs> well ahead, new details on Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine and its effectiveness against the Omicron variant. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, you can check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. We'll be right back. Markets looking to make it a three-peat. Futures are pointing to a higher open as stocks work to build on this week's momentum. The race to raise the debt ceiling, making a key step forward after the House sends the Senate a plan to get the job done with roughly a week to go. And speaking of Capitol Hill, leaders from the crypto industry set to face lawmakers amid growing calls for more regulation of the digital assets. What it could all mean amid the recent wild swings in prices. It's Wednesday, December 8th, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back. I am Courtney Reagan in this morning for Brian Sullivan. Welcome to wherever you may be watching us from around the world. Here's how your money and investments are looking right now as we're halfway through the 5 a.m. hour. Stock futures are indicating that we'll have a higher open if things were to open right now. The Dow Jones Industrial Average indicated higher by 41 points. The Nasdaq, the outperformer, clearly indicated higher by 50 points. And the S&P 500 up by nine. This morning's action does come on the heels of another strong day for Wall Street. The Salted Tower eyes nearly 500 points. The S&P and the Nasdaq also surging seeing their best days, I believe, since about March. In the driver's seat was tech with a more than 3.5% gain. Amid that rebound in tech, let's get a check on the Treasuries. We can see right now where the 10-year yield is sitting at 1.451% here. The two-year is at 0.679%. Let's move on to some of your morning's top corporate stories, including the House taking a key step toward raising this country's debt ceiling. Bertha Coombs is back with those details. Hi, Bertha. Hi, Courtney. Lawmakers in the House passing a bill that would allow the Senate 
to raise the debt ceiling with a simple majority vote. Republicans in the Senate have been blocking Democrats' efforts for weeks to take up any bill that would provide a long-term increase to that threshold. But Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has signaled that he is confident he can get enough GOP members to support the resolution. The Treasury Department has said that it could reach the limit on its ability to borrow to finance the federal government's obligations as soon as uh, Wednesday. On the Omicron front, scientists in South Africa say that the variant significantly reduces antibody protections created by Pfizer and BioNTech's vaccine. This according to a small preliminary study that has yet to be peer-reviewed. Scientists added that people who have recovered from the virus and received a booster shot will likely have more protection from severe disease. And cryptos getting their day on Capitol Hill today as leaders from the industry go before Congress to discuss growing calls for more regulation of digital assets. Six CEOs, including the head of Coinbase, will testify before the House Financial Services Committee. Members of Congress are expected to call on the CEOs to be more accountable to customers and investors, while the executives are expected to stress the potentially transformative impact cryptos could have on the U.S. economy, Courtney. And apparently you can now gift crypto easily. You can gift someone a wallet if you know how to do that. It's it's probably something that most teenagers are looking for this holiday. That, that is very fascinating. Probably no supply chain shortage there. So that's an idea for us all. Thank you, Bertha. Well, let's yeah. talk more about what to expect from that crypto hearing that Bertha just detailed for us, bringing in Brian Kelly. He's founder and managing member of Brian Kelly Capital and a CNBC contributor. Of course, Brian, you have been early to the Bitcoin game on top of it the whole way. So I guess if you're one of these leaders, at least you want your voice to be heard in front of Congress. You want them to understand the position that you're coming from. I guess not all regulation could be bad as long as everyone sort of understands the rules and it's not over restrictive. Is is that the goal that these leaders are trying to get across? Yeah, I think so. I mean, for those of us who have been in the wild, we remember a time when the regulators wouldn't even talk to you. So, you know, any step towards some clarity around this actually uh, is pretty helpful. And I think, you know, if you look at this as this more as a technology and there's more than just Bitcoin out there, this is a growth industry for the U.S. And the U.S. has always been a leader in innovation. And so what we don't want to see is stifling that innovation and seeing all those jobs and all those new companies go offshore. Asia is a big hub for crypto. It's taking a lot of market share. And those of us in the U.S. would like to have just a little bit of clarity about how the regulators view this and you know, allow this industry to grow. How far along do you think Congress, the individuals in Congress are in their thinking and understanding about these digital currencies. I think all of us have really grown in our understanding, but there are still some that I believe think this is really just used for illicit purposes. And that could potentially be a roadblock for them sort of opening up their minds and and understanding that it could be used for more things. I mean, how far along are they in understanding really the evolution of digital currencies and assets? Yeah. So, I mean, some are very, very far along, like the state that I'm in, Wyoming, Senator Cynthia Lummis. She is very far along uh, in understanding cryptocurrencies and and has been a huge uh, voice for the cryptocurrency uh, industry in in Washington. Now, that being said, there are also 
some that do think it is still used for for uh, illicit purposes. But MIT did a study and several other people have done a study that says less than 1% of the Bitcoin transactions have been used for illicit purposes as compared to more than 3% of U.S. dollars, actual $100 bills. So, you know, I think people are starting to understand that if you are going to use Bitcoin for an illicit purpose, it's probably the worst thing you can do because the blockchain tracks everything. So it's really that's kind of a, a false uh, meme, if you will. And, and I do think um, a lot of Congress people are understanding that not only that, again, like as here in Wyoming, a lot of people are understanding that this is a job creating industry. So what kind of regulation could potentially be on the table here? What are we talking about? Well, I think, you know, here's the thing. Everybody always says, boy, there's, you know, there's, it's an unregulated industry. And that's not true. I mean, I, my company, BKCM, is registered with the SEC. We're registered with the NFA. We have to follow those rules. Uh, and we do follow those rules. And most of the people in the industry do. The issue that you have here is that it is a global industry subject to local rules with the U.S. as the leader in that or the U.S. should be the leader in that. So I think as long as there's some clarity around it, you know, where does this fit? Are cryptocurrencies the purview of the SEC? Are cryptocurrencies the purview of the CFTC? Or is it kind of broader and it goes under more of a financial services area? I hope and I think that's what Congress is trying to get at today is where does this fit? And then we know the rules. And so, you know what, maybe some of these rules have to be tweaked just because it is a new technology and the old laws have hadn't really contemplated what we're doing here. Uh, but I think that's where we are in this stage right now. And BK, before we let you go, I'd be remiss if I didn't get your thoughts on the market here. Had a nice little rally the last couple days. Futures indicating a higher open here. Our worries about the Omicron variant behind us. Now we know more about Fed policy and intentions. Is it is it all systems go from here? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, you know, I'm a markets person. So if I look at how the market reacted to all this news, we have Omicron, which is likely to be less severe. There is still some protection from uh, the from from the vaccines. Uh, and then now we have a little bit more clarity about Fed policy and investors can say, hey, listen, yeah, the taper might come a little bit faster. We might get interest rates uh, rising faster, which the market has kind of been pricing in all year. But guess what? That probably means that inflation is somewhat under control, or at least that's what the market's saying, and it's not going to erode earnings. So when I think about that in the big picture, I do think this is actually a really good uh, time for risk. Now, on the other side, let's say, hey, BK, you're wrong. Absolutely, the, the, the Omicron's going to be worse, and things are getting worse. Well, then we know that the Fed is going to reverse that policy, and that'll be supportive to risk assets. So we're not gonna, it's not going to be without some indigestion. We certainly saw a lot of that over the last couple of weeks, but I actually feel pretty positive about risk assets here. Oh, good. I like the positive attitude. I want this all to be behind us. BK, thank you for exactly. joining us this morning. Thanks, Court. Thanks. Let's get a check on this morning's other headlines outside the world of money and business. There is one of those. NBC's Francis Rivera is in New York with the latest. Good morning, Francis. Hi, Courtney. Good morning. We start with a high stakes video call that the White House described as direct and useful. President Biden warned Russian President Vladimir Putin not to invade Ukraine. According to the White House, during the more than two hour call, President Biden voiced deep concerns about Russia's escalation of forces on the Ukrainian border. The president warning Putin the U.S. would pursue strong economic measures, among other consequences. The explosive trial of Jesse Smollett is one step closer to wrapping up. After six days of testimony and nearly nine hours on the stand himself, Smollett's fate will soon be in the hands of a jury. Both sides have rested their case. The former Empire actor faces six felony counts of disorderly conduct after claiming two masked men attacked him. 
yelling racist and homophobic slurs. Coco Chanel said when accessorizing, take one thing off before you leave the house. But people are asking more from the designer brand. TikTok users are slamming Chanel for an $825 advent calendar. You see it right there. So the luxury twist on the holiday classic includes small items like stickers, a keychain, a perfume sample. Unhappy customers use the app to share that they expected much more from their expensive order. A Chanel spokesperson said the controversy was a shame and that the brand never intended to upset shoppers. But that's a lot more, Courtney, of what Coco Chanel might have said. You know, she has that saying, like, I don't care what you think of me. I don't think of you at all. So the fact that they came out with that statement. But people should know when it comes to that label where, you know, a small purse you know, a small little shirt or the thousands of dollars, they shouldn't be too surprised. Very, very much so. Although $825 for some stickers. Stickers. I can kind (laughs) of understand that one. Thank you, Francis. Sure thing. Well, coming up, a worldwide exchange exclusive. The CEO of Diamondback Energy on America's road ahead for energy production amid the jump in oil prices. But first, as we had to break, more of your other top stories. The company, formerly known as Facebook, is allowing employees to hold off on returning to the office. Meta says it will fully reopen its U.S. offices at the end of January, but will give workers the opportunity to delay their return to as late as June. Ford CEO says the automaker is doing whatever it takes to double its production capacity for the electric version of its F-150 pickup truck. Jim Farley making those comments while speaking with Jim Cramer on last night's Mad Money. Ford has nearly 200,000 retail reservations for the vehicle, which is set to arrive in dealerships by the middle of next year. And Kellogg says it plans to hire permanent replacements after striking employees at several of the company's cereal plants rejected the company's latest contract offer. Kellogg's is the majority of the 1,400 union members who have been on strike for two months have rejected its latest five-year offer. Worldwide Exchange is back in a moment. Time now for your big money movers. Three stock stories of the morning. First, Visa, the company announcing it's launching a consulting service to help clients navigate the world of crypto. The move comes amid a push by the payment processor to help ramp up mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets as it eyes crypto as it eyes crypto as a growth opportunity. Shares higher just marginally. Second, Apple, production of the tech giant's flagship iPhone 13 reportedly falling 20% short of previous projections in recent months. This, according to a report by Nikkei, that report adding that assembly on iPhones as well as iPads stopped completely at some Chinese factories during the Golden Week holidays in early October, when operations are usually running overtime ahead of the holiday season. Shares of Apple are up slightly. And third, ChargePoint. Shares are falling after the company reported a loss of 21 cents per share for the third quarter, up from a year ago, the EV charging network's revenue of $65 million, slightly beating expectations and raising its full-year revenue guidance to $235 to $240 million. Shares lower by about 4%. The CEO of ChargePoint will have more on his company's results coming in an exclusive conversation on CNBC at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Well, Brian Sullivan is at the World Petroleum Conference this week, sitting down with a number of energy CEOs at a time when historic price increases and shortages have been in focus across the globe. We are pleased to be joined here at the World Petroleum Congress by Travis Stice. He is the CEO of Diamondback Energy. Some would say the original FANG, the ticker F-A-N-G. Kind of a cool ticker given all the tech stuff. Uh, and an important time to be speaking with CNBC, Travis. So thank you very You're much. you Brian. Uh, everybody seems to be wondering one thing. Why is the U.S. and producers like Diamondback not drilling more oil right now? 
It's a good question, Brian, but let's kind of look at the macro first. The U.S. is growing production. We're 11.5 million barrels a day on the way to probably 11.75. And the Permian specifically is uh, we're probably going to reach an all-time high in production this month or next at over 5 million barrels a day. But the fundamental question about why we're not growing is because we have pivoted as an industry, at least for the public guys, from a business model that is chasing growth at all costs to now we're chasing returns. So the real competition between public guys now is not who can grow the fastest, but it's who can generate the greatest returns and give it back to their shareholders. Because unfortunately, like everything in America these days, everything becomes politicized, as you know. And so there's a thought that, oh, the U.S. producers are just kind of thumbing their noses at at Washington and they won't produce more as some sort of punishment. That's not it at all, right? It's just that for 10 years, investors lost a lot of money. And they are making very hardcore demands on you and your management team. Yeah, and I think it's a fair question to ask what, what would it take for the public guys to start growing again. And I think you've really got a couple of macro fundamentals that need to be resolved. You've got a lot of surplus capacity on the global oil stage today. And then more importantly, you've got investor sentiment. As you just pointed out, they're saying we're enjoying the returns for the first time in 10 years, and they're not telling us to grow either. And I think we've still got to see how the, how the COVID uh, Omicron plays out as well, too, because it's obviously going to have an impact on demand. So until those macros change, you know, you're not going to see the public guys really leaning into growth for the foreseeable future. But you said something really fascinating about uh, there actually is growth in, in the Permian Basin and even in eastern New Mexico, I assume. One thing I've learned covering this business, coming in knowing exactly zero, mm-hmm. uh, was there's good rock and there's not good rock. Like the, you have good, from what I understand, you guys have what they tier one acreage. Tell us what separates sort of Diamondback from maybe some of the others. Well, there's really three things I want our investors and your listeners to know about Diamondback. The first is that, you know, we've emerged from this pandemic stronger than ever. We took advantage of 2020 and and really honed our business processes and continued to drive efficiencies into our business. The second thing is, is that, look, in a commodity-based business like we're in, where you don't control the price of the product you produce, the best operator with the lowest cost and the best execution wins. And that's been our stock and trade for 10 years. And the third thing, Brian, is that from an environmental, social, and governance perspective, our investors are looking at Diamondback to lead the pack. They certainly want us to lead in terms of performance and lead in terms of disclosure. And there's a real important point here I want your listeners to understand, particularly because it it pertains to the environmental pressure that all of us are under. There's no oil-producing country in the world. There's no oil-producing country in the world that is working as hard as the public U.S. oil and gas guys at reducing emissions, reducing our environmental footprint, and continuing to earn our environmental license to operate. I'm going to put on my activist hat. If I had an activist hat, I would say this. That's just greenwashing. There's many people who believe that the fossil fuel industry is the problem. They can't be a part of the solution because whatever they're trying to solve, they've actually created. Look, for Diamondback specifically, we've come out with five-year goals about GHG emissions. We're going to cut that by 50% from the 2019 levels. We're going to- how, how do you do that? So for GHG emissions, it's primarily around flaring. And flaring has to do with the way you control your business. Now, we've actually, there's two things when you look at flaring. One is what the you know, companies like Diamondback are in control of. The second one is what the midstream guys are, you know, the midstream guys are in control of. of the flaring that Diamondback has had over the last couple of years has been because our midstream partners haven't kept pace with our development. Now, we have a responsibility to make sure we're communicating so they follow, but the first thing for GH&G emissions is elimination of flaring. And we've come out and publicly said, look, 
Routine flaring as defined, uh, you know, as, as we see the definitions of, we're going to eliminate that, and we're, we're well on the way of doing that. The second thing, though, Brian, is that emissions of methane are the most, you know, that's the most punitive thing to the atmosphere. Heat retention, we all know what the statistics, statistics are, but for, for Diamondback, we're going to cut that by 70%. We're well on our way of doing that, and we're doing it very tactically and very thoughtful. We have 800 tank batteries that we're systematically going through and changing out pneumatically controlled devices that are operated by natural gas, and we're changing that to air, and that's going to make a dramatic reduction in our Can you do that without dramatically spiking the price of oil and gasoline? Absolutely. We've committed 20 to $30 million a year, you know, for the next several years in doing these type of things to drive methane, uh, methane emissions reductions. And look, we're not chasing to an end point. This is a continuous process. We're holding ourselves accountable to a five-year goal. At the end of that five-year goal, or before then, because I think we're going to meet it well in advance of that, we'll put more goals in place. Reduce GHG uh, emissions and reduce methane emissions. Travis Dice, CEO of the original FANG, Diamondback Energy. Really appreciate you joining us here at the World Petroleum Congress in Houston. Travis, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thank Thank you. you very much. Well, our thanks to Brian Sullivan and all the hard work he and his team are doing down there in Houston. It is a very big conference. Well, on deck, markets looking to land a hat trick. A futures work for a third straight day of gains, although we're losing some steam in the Dow. Katie Stockton lays out why a more challenging environment could be ahead for stocks. And a reminder, join us today for CNBC's Financial Advisor Summit, where we'll look ahead to opportunities in 2022. What will be the key investment themes and what new challenges await? There's still time to register. Just go to cnbcevents.com slash FA Summit. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Futures are pulling back just a bit here. The Dow right now is indicated lower by about 17 points. S&P 500 higher, but just about flat. And then Nasdaq is still holding on to some early gains higher by 37 points. But your next guest says recent technical signals do suggest a more challenging environment ahead for stocks. So she's probably not surprised about these moves. Katie Stockton is the founder of Fairland Strategies. Katie, it's great to see you here today. What are the charts telling you about why maybe we shouldn't be so excited about this rally continuing? Well, it's a nice rebound for sure. And we saw a successful test of support by the major indices, including the S&P 500, which had support around 45, 46 by our measures. It also managed to hold its rising 50-day moving average, and that is an incremental positive. However, it's not lost on all of us that there's been a very significant loss of market breadth or participation, meaning that over the last month or so, just fewer stocks have participated on the upside. And at first, that didn't take much of a toll in the major indices. But then, of course, over the Thanksgiving holiday and the subsequent week, we did see a pretty good pullback, 5% for the S&P 500. Impact was really um, very minimal in terms of the term uh, trend following gauges that we use. But if you look at the intermediate term gauges, there is some deterioration, meaning that momentum has fallen off enough to suggest that we're in for a more difficult Q1. And it seemed for so long that tech stocks were sort of the only thing that was leading us higher every day. That was, again, the case yesterday, although that has not been the consistent theme in the rallies that we've seen each day recently. What are the tech stocks telling you, technically speaking? Is there more room to run? Are valuations already too full at this point? 
we generally stay with working and large cap technology in particular has been working very well and outperforming some of the ratios that we track things like XLK, which is the technology spider versus the S&P 500 are starting to look a bit stretched, but we don't react to that until we actually see a downtick and we have not seen that yet. So we are overweight technology. However, like you said, we've seen a little bit more rotation, a little bit of issues, especially as it pertains to the high segment you know, the growth names really led on the downside during back. We did see a lot of breakdowns there from a bottom-up perspective and really the small and mid-cap front. And, and those breakdowns don't really, uh, they're, they're localized, right? They don't necessarily have a major impact on the major indices, but they do give you a sense that structurally there's a little bit of a chink in the armor of the marketplace. So those smaller and mid-cap technology stocks are, are struggling a bit. You know, I, I'm sort of anxious about what we're going to hear from the inflation report, the CPI report, when it comes out on Friday. From a technical perspective, is there anything that you think we should be prepared for? Are there stocks that are sort of setting up already for whatever that news is to come? Well, the way we're thinking about it is that this oversold bounce, we want to hold positions throughout it and let that the ones that have broken down sort of relieve themselves of this weakness to some degree. But as soon as we see a momentum downtick, irrespective of what the driver may be, we'll probably recommend reducing exposure, especially to names that do appear broken. And for the S&P 500, if we were to see a dip below that 45, 46 again, at the same time the VIX gets back above our risk threshold, which is about 29, that would be cause for concern and increased risk for the S&P 500 to about 4,300, which is next support. So those are the levels that we're watching. Katie, um, according to your most recent report, you have some new long ideas as well as some new short ideas. Can you share some of those with our viewers? You know, we actually, in our latest run, which was just yesterday, we go through the S&P 500 every week, we did discover that we liked more of the setups on the defensive front, meaning sectors like consumer staples and utilities and even REITs are looking better. And, and they are actually the source of breakouts to new highs. If you look at IYR as an example of the REIT sector, that chart, you see it, it's reaching a new high and it seems to be gaining some relative strength. So we're seeing a little bit of a shift in what we like or favor in terms of longs. And on the short side, we're, we're seeing more short setups, meaning that more stocks have broken down and more stocks have lost enough momentum that we're getting some sell signals there. So definitely a lot of ideas on both sides of the market right now. It looks like some of your long ideas, uh, newly long ideas, Apple and UDR, short ideas, Borg Warner and Synchrony Financial. That's right. Those are still valid. Great. Well, Katie Stockton, it's great to have you here helping us set up the market day as we look at the futures and see that we have lost a little bit of steam, as we indicated for the Dow Jones Industrial Average, though the Nasdaq is indicating a higher open to the tune of 38 points. The S&P 500 about flat to slightly higher. Let's take a quick look at what's going on in the Treasury market here. The yield on the 10-year is trading at 1.434%. The two-year 
0.677. And let's take a look at crypto. As we know, leaders are scheduled to go to D.C. to discuss potential regulation with lawmakers. You can see Bitcoin has now slipped below that $50,000 level, down by 2% at 49400 We do see that Ether is just slightly higher. And lastly, let's take a look here at oil prices. WTI crude also slipping below $72 a barrel, so losing some steam here over the last hour, down about 1%. Ice Brent crude is also lower, about 74 spot 87. Well, that does it for us on Worldwide Exchange this morning. Thank you for watching for wherever you are around the world. Squawk Box is coming up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.